my poetry was with me, but it would never come out. But then later in my early to mid twenties, I would just be at a gathering and these verses would just burst out of me in Farsi. And to my surprise, no one dragged me out and (laughs) (laughs) said, what are you doing? And instead they were like, wow, what is that? That speaks right to my heart or my soul. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Ari Honava. Ari is the founder of Rumi with a View, dedicated to building music and poetry bridges across war-torn and conflict-ridden borders. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Teen Vogue, Washington Post, and elsewhere. She is the author of one of Paul's favorite oracle card sets with book, Rumi's Gift and her debut novel is forthcoming in 2021. I have studied many of the great poets, particularly mystic poets, and there is no one deeper and more diverse and even radical than Rumi. Jalaluddin Rumi, considered the greatest mystical poet of Persia, was born in Korshan, the northeast province of Greater Iran, in 1207. When he was 12 years old, his family had to flee before the advancing Mongol hordes and settled in Turkey. After his marriage and the death of his father, who was highly regarded as an eminent theologian and great teacher and preacher, Rumi went through his own enlightenment experience, which blew his heart wide open, and he spent the rest of his life until he died in 1273 in an open outpouring of mystical poetry. He was often followed by scribes who tried to capture Rumi's mystical wisdom, which some experts say equates to as many as 2,500 mystical odes and the Mathwani, which contains some 25,000 poems. In my personal library, I probably have one of the greatest collections of Rumi's poetry there is, and have studied him for the last 25 years or more because of the profound effects his words and teachings have on my soul. That stated, you can imagine the joy and amazement when, through a synchronous event that I share in the podcast today, I learned of a woman who lives, breathes, and writes and paints Rumi and his divine messages, and I was overjoyed when I found out she lives in San Diego, my hometown. That amazing woman is Ari Honovar, creator of Rumi's Gift Oracle Cards, which truly carry the marriage of her soul with Rumi's. Ari, as a little girl who lived through the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq, describes how Rumi isn't an intellectual process for her, but a way of living and breathing for her and her people. You will be amazed to hear how her, her family, and her people use poetry to get through the most dangerous, scary times in their lives, with bombs blowing up all around them, and never knew from moment to moment if she or her family would live or die. My family and I were blessed to have Ari come share a day with us, painting, enjoying food, and creating an incredible podcast that you are about to enjoy with us. Her art is as incredible as her poetry, and if you've ever wondered what would happen if Rumi came back in female form, you're about to find out. You'll get to hear her recite a few key selections of Rumi's poems in Farsi, Rumi's native language, and if you put your awareness within yourself as she speaks, you will feel the winds of the divine moving right through you, whether you understand the words or not. But don't worry, she gives you the English translations. Ari and I have a deep, loving dialogue 
on the depth, meanings, and applications of Rumi's potent messages in our own lives. I hope the experience of hearing her dialogue with me is as transformative for you as it was for me. Enjoy Ari Hanavar, Rumi's gift to you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have a very special and exciting guest for you. Ari Hanavar is the creator of Rumi's Gift Rumi, uh, Oracle Cards. I tripped over my tongue there. I get so excited about having you here. <laughs> Ari, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you. Um, I invited Ari over, and uh, Ari's beautiful, beautiful deck of cards uh, comes with amazing art in which she has written uh, most, if not all, the poems in the original language of Rumi. And so the uh, paintings are encoded uh, with the poetry, and they're just beautiful. And when I saw these paintings, I, the first thought I had is, I have got to track this woman down and paint with her. So we got to paint together today, and it was just beautiful. It was a very magical experience. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it was uh, funny because, uh, you know, I chose a Rumi card for today. I actually connected to Rumi's soul and said, guide me to the card for today for my day with Ari and our podcast, and he chose The Fool. And then um, you started the painting with a poem, and it's written in Farsi, so I couldn't read it, so I asked you what it said. Do you remember what it is? Yes, I do. Sure. Would you like it. to hear it in Farsi first? Yes. Ankas ketura shenacht, janra chekonat. Farzando, ayalo, khanemanra chekonat. دیوانه کنی هر دو جهانش بخشی دیوانه کنی هر دو جهانش بخشی دیوانه تو هر دو جهان را چه کند and so i love it because she's been giving sharing poems today as we've been together and and i just sort of just empty myself and it feels like i'm a musical instrument being played by the words by your voice and so now share it with, with us in English, and I'll say, you know, what, what I thought was so magical about that. Once I know you, my beloved, what will I do with my precious life? With my household, spouse, children, what will I do? Engulfed in your love, I'll go mad. And in that madness, I'll see you have given me both heaven and earth. <laughs> but what use is heaven and earth to a mad woman? What will I do? What will I do? What will I do? That's amazing. So, you see, I don't think I'd told you about which card I'd pulled yet. And so when she said the poem to me, I said, come here, i got to show you something. And... That poem is so much the experience of the fool, you know, completely just lost in it all, you know, and just so one with all that is and free of judgment and non-concern for other people's opinions and totally brave enough to just be authentically themselves. So I thought it was just such an amazing, th you know, synchronicity that she starts our painting with that. And as soon as I heard the words, I went, oh my God, there's synchronicity right there. So I showed her the card from her own deck. 
Yeah, on my drive over, I just kept hearing that that in my head over and over again. So that's I knew great. that's the one. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, what I'd love to do before we get into the cards, and, and for all of you, these cards are just incredible. I have a very comprehensive collection of card decks from various tarots to shamanic cards to uh, even scientific cards with atoms and geometrical forms. And uh, uh, before I, I well, I, what I was saying is is that this card deck, just the art and the poetry is so powerful. And in, in the little guidebook has the art and the poems. And in the cards, there's a lot of the cards that have the uh, paintings that Ari did herself with a friend. And um, some of them, there's a painting and then there's the extension of the poem in the card deck. But uh, I just absolutely love these cards and I've been using them every day since I got them. But I wanted to share with all of you how this came about uh, just to show you how much magical timing there is in the universe. Angie, you guys all probably know Angie, check my, my second wife. Um, she had this deep, deep urge to create an oracle, uh, I mean, a, um, a labyrinth on our property, on our new property. And so she was having dreams about it. And it was as though the land was calling her to create this oracle. So she did. And she, in her research, found out that there's a, an, uh, a labyrinth society here in San Diego. So she thought, I'm going to give them a call and just talk to them and you know, just get to know who they are. And they offered to come out. And it turns out that they will evaluate people's labyrinths for them and give them feedback to help them improve them. And so they sent two experts out. Do you remember their names? Yes. Um, Jamie and I believe it Elizabeth. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, they, they came and they looked at Angie's labyrinth and they walked it and they were just amazed and they said we we don't have anything to do to improve it it's absolutely perfect they loved it and so as they were finishing up with angie i just happened to be finished with a client was walking over to the house just to check in on the kids and say hi and they were talking to angie at the front door and i got into the conversation and they said something and i said you know that sounds very much like Rumi." i said are you guys into Rumi?" they said oh yeah we love Rumi." i said well i've been studying Rumi's poetry for 20 years or more and they said, well, you have to meet our friend Ari Hanavar. She's, uh, you know, an expert at Rumi, and she, she's the person that, she's the Rumi expert. You really got to meet this woman. And so uh, I asked them if they would forward your contacts and, and how to find you. And so then I looked you up on the internet and found these cards. And so I ordered the cards and when I got a hold of these cards, I'm like, I saw the paintings and I read the poetry and it was just so <laughs> intensely Rumi, you know, like, as you know, there's a lot of Rumi translations, but sometimes um, some of them are uh, like photocopies and some of them are like originals. And when I read your art, uh, your, your poems and saw the paintings, I went, <laughs> this woman is like the embodiment of Rumi. I've got to meet her. So I started searching you on the internet. When I found out you were in San Diego, I almost jumped out of my clothes. I'm like, oh my God, maybe she can come over here and we can paint together and do a podcast live. And you agreed to do it. And so I was just so, so excited about that. Um, and so thank you so much for coming and spending the day with me because that's quite a gift. 
Absolutely. And um, do you want to tell the audience about the painting the, that you sent me to entice me to go? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, you know, the thing is, is I, I actually just had this feeling because, interestingly, when I looked at your paintings, I felt, you know, I paint a lot of paintings that have that kind of energy and style, and I could see the. Um, um, uh, how can I say it? The 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 expression without boundaries. You know, like a lot of paintings look like people are really trying hard to make everything look perfect, and 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 uh, you know what I'm saying? Like it's they're they're like almost like they're painting, um, like they're trying to be a, a camera instead of really just expressing themselves. And so when I saw that, and I was writing to you, I thought, you know, maybe she might like to see some of my art. So I said to my soul, um, I just opened up my file. I have a, a f section in my computer where I keep my own paintings, which there's hundreds of. And I said to my soul, which one should I send her? And she said, send her your painting called uh, The Dance of the Soul. And so that's the one I sent you. And I just felt that for some reason, my soul said, that's the one. And I looked at it, I said, you know, that's a special painting to me because I painted that as part of my healing from my midlife crisis. And when I painted it, I was in a lot of emotional pain. So I feel it carries sort of the essence of the depth of me, not just the happy-go-lucky, but the firewalk, you know. So I sent you the dance of the soul. And uh, I didn't realize that you you really uh, were touched by it till you told me. So it was quite an amazing coincidence that. Yeah, it... it immediately resonated with me because the face that you painted looked like one of the carvings on Persopolis. Yes, you showed me that today on the internet and that blew me away. Tell us about who that uh, Persopolis is. Uh, Persopolis is is uh, the ruins. Persopolis was the, uh, the capital of the Persian Empire um, long ago, 3,000 years ago. And... Uh, um, it was uh, ruined by Alexander, oh. uh, the Greek, and um, but at the time, those carvings, of course, they're um, you know I've been to Persepolis many times. I, I'm from Shiraz, Iran, and and as soon as I saw this, I was like, wow! I mean, the the painting was great, but that is what I was like. I gotta meet this man. So. <laughs> So, you know, to, to kick us off, I would love it if you would take us through the sort of a, an experience of your life. Um, you know, it's, you don't, typically in my experience, you don't meet someone with the kind of depth you have unless they've already had a walk through hell. Jung says, no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach to hell. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at your poetry and your painting, I see a woman who's uh, got her feet in hell and got her head in heaven mm -hmm. and has found the middle and can live from every angle and perspective and probably has enough awareness of the trials of life to really have empathy for anyone on this planet. So I'd love it if you could share, uh, give us the story of your journey from, from, you know, when you were born and where you were born and brought you into this union with Rumi and such a depth of expression in your art and your poetry as expressed in Rumi's gift, Oracle Cards. Yes, thank you. Um, I was born in Shiraz, Iran, and uh, 
in Iran, you have to understand that poetry is as part of an Iranian life as our very own heartbeat. Um, poems of Hafez, Rumi, Saadi, Ferdowsi, Khayyam, Etesami, all of these po poets have been part of us and been passed down generation after generation. And I can't even remember a time where I was without them. And, um, you know, so it was like, when did your relationship with Rumi begin? I often say, well, it began long before I was born. And I would recite Hafez and Rumi and Khayyam poetry before I could read or write because we use them in conversation. We use them to resolve conflicts. Mm. We use poetry to... Uh, welcome joy, welcome sorrow in every part of enduring a really particularly beautiful meal, you know. Mm. So, so <laughs> and, and then we could just go back and forth and have these long conversations just through uh, back and forth repeat, doing verses. Mm -hmm. I, I, I say a verse and then the yes. response is another verse from another poet or the same poet. So, so that's that's kind of the background of of how I I'm not a Rumi scholar. I just um, it, he flows in my blood. Um, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so then life really changed in a dramatic way when I was six years old, and all of a sudden, women of Iran did lost their right to uh, ride a bicycle or mm. or. Um, uh, sing, sing in public, or jog, or uh, you know, all the women were stripped of their judgeship, who who were judges. Um, women, according to the Sharia law, women were half as worthy as men, and that's the Islamic Republic that um, started taking root and taking away all the joys, all the all the beauty, sucked it all out. <laughs> so. So that's that's kind of how it all changed, you know. All of a sudden, I can't go out without covering my hair mm -hmm. and my body. I can't play with my best friend, who's a boy, um, and so many other restrictions. We act women actually had to sit on the back of the bus, for example. What brought that on? Um, well, I mean, there's never one singular. Um, event mm -hmm. that causes such thing. There were a lot of things. Uh, the Shah of Iran was getting very uh, powerful. Mm -hmm. there, the army was getting pretty big. Maybe I think, um, and don't quote me on this, but I think they had like the fifth biggest army in the in in in, um, in the, the Middle in, East. Yeah, I know. The, I think it was over a million. If I remember right, because when I was a soldier, they used to train us on all these other militaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the Shah had a very close relationship with the U.S. And then all of a sudden, um, he decided that he wanted to cut ties with. And this, we could go on to so many different things that played it, but it's just one one uh, one string that we can follow. And um, and so the U.S. didn't so much like this idea of um, all these resources, all the oil and minerals and such to um, to be just for Iran because they were getting, a, the British and the U.S. were getting a very um, good good um, good deal 
on, on the natural resources. So that was happening, but then at the same time, there was some corruption happening in domestically, um, as with monarchies do. They mm. were having lavish parties and palaces while people were going hungry. So uh, a lot of different elements. So, and then uh, Khomeini, whom you might remember. Uh, yeah. yeah, so he, she, he was exiled in Paris. And, um, and now the recent CIA documents show that uh, the CIA was actually in touch with Khomeini Mm. to to come and take over Shah. So on the radio, we would hear Khomeini's um, speeches, you know, and this was this unknown mullah, and all of a sudden we were hearing, um, you know, it was like, wow, what he says, you know, is this is what he says. He wants to have, bring, um, like, uh, reign in corruption and, and uh, have a very modest kind of a government and... Uh, all of that. So then he, um, we, the revolt happened. Shah fled Iran. Then Khomeini became the leader, and all the promises that he had made with, or much of the promises he had made to the Iranian people, he, um, you know, just didn't, didn't follow through. Didn't follow through. Same the promises he had made with CIA. Mm, so. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of what happened. And then just uh, we were supposed to have this kind of a democracy, but it end up, ended up being kind of a, a fundamentalist power grab mm. uh, and kind of made the, the, the model for the Taliban because mm. the Taliban were just like this, maybe not, not super powerful, but, but when they saw what could be done, they were very successful in Afghanistan. So that was the background. Then Saddam Hussein attacked Iran a year after that and started a war that um, took eight, uh, eight years and took a million lives. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. The fact that you're here is evidence that you're searching. You're looking into the possibility of bettering yourself, improving the lives of those around you, and maybe even the world. Maybe you're looking for some like-minded people to share the journey with you. That's great, and I hope you're finding all of that here and even more. But feeling a sense of belonging can only get you so far. Getting involved and making a real contribution is what sparks true responsibility and meaning in our lives. That's why I founded the Czech Academy and created an educational system that can help anyone become an elite, well-paid holistic health professional, regardless of prior experience. I created the Academy for people just like you. It's for busy people, people with commitments, people who want to make a change in their lives and a real difference in their clients' lives and the world, and you can build the skills you need and still honor your job and commitments because the Academy is all about quality over quantity. You can complete all of our educational materials within as little as five hours a week and begin to practice your new skills immediately. I've designed the lessons to be that digestible for any student. Plus, you'll have the support of exclusive online workshops, group mentor calls, and of course, your fellow students. It's everything you'll need to become a world-class holistic health practitioner and a real difference maker in the lives of those around you. Go to chekinstitute.com forward slash academy. That's chekinstitute.com forward slash academy to apply and get a free consultation with our career advisors and learn more. 
Applications are open until November 15th, but I may have to close it down earlier because we've had a lot of applications and there are limited seats in the academy. We try to keep the class numbers down so that there's a lot more instructor contact and better depth and penetration of learning. Thank you and I look forward to seeing you in the academy where we achieve personal well-being and share our love and wisdom with the world. So mm. we were, our own government was oppressing us and killing us. There we were dealing with ration lines and um, bombings and and uh, daily funerals, and it was just very, uh, uh, very hard life, especially mm. for women. But mm. men also were affected a lot. Uh, as a child, it was really hard. Um, but poetry was that's what we used as our salvation. Because um, both music and dancing had also become illegal under the, the wow. fundamentalist laws, so we couldn't express ourselves. Freedom of thought was curtailed to a very uh, um, strict degree. And I tell the story of um, when we were in, in my events, I tell the story of when I was seven and we would go um, to our rooftop when we were particularly brave to watch the anti-aircraft missiles shoot up into the sky. And, um, and to my seven-year-old eyes, these were the most beautiful, magnificent patterns, red patterns in the sky, gold, mm. gold and red. Um, but underneath that was this formant of, of tumult and, and terror uh, who's going to die next? Is it going to be me, my yeah. sister in Tehran? Is it going to be my teacher, my best friend? And then someone from another rooftop would shout something like, That means, even if from the sky poison befalls all, I am still sweetness, wrapped mm. in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness. Mm. What's the way to go? And a passerby below would respond, While others are singing about love, I am the sultan of love. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and That's a lot of bravery. Verses like that go right into your heart mm -hmm. and radiate to every cell of your being until you're everything and nothing at the same time. And what mom could ever touch that? Yeah, well, thank God you had the poetry because uh, if you didn't... Um, well, what would have been left for someone without that to, to anchor them in in God and in something beyond life and death? You know? mm -hmm. So you were 14 when you came to the States, is that correct? Correct, yeah. And so what was that like for you to come over here? It was like being in a different planet. Um, completely, I didn't know English, so I had to learn that. My parents weren't with me. Um, I lived with an American family for a while to learn English. And then I lived with my brother who I hadn't seen for 10 years mm -hmm. because when he left Iran as an exchange student, the revolution happened and he couldn't come back. So um, 
we, yeah, so it was kind of an anthropological experiment to live with this man who I didn't know and, uh, and just make my way in, in this world. Yeah, well, you've done awful well. <laughs> Thank you. What? I've had a lot of help. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, what, what, what led to you deciding to make this amazing deck of cards? So um, I would, you know, the, the first several years of being in the U.S., I pretty much immersed myself in the culture because I wanted to scrub any traces of otherness. Mm -hmm. So I would be accepted. I would be able to function without um, uh, being the target of prejudice or, or just a stranger being amongst us kind of a feeling. And just... Um, and so my poetry was with me, but it would never come out. But then later in my early to mid-20s, I would just be at a gathering and these verses would just burst out of me in Farsi. And to my surprise, no one dragged me out and you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> said, what are you doing? And instead they were like, wow what is that? That speaks right to my heart or my yes. soul. And I said, well, that's Hafez. That's Rumi. That's Ferdosi. And they said, well, translate it. And I would translate it. And and uh, someone, at, I was at a, this place called Casa de Luz in, in Austin, Texas, where a friend of mine, um, Whitley Smith, was sitting there. And, and uh, as I'm reciting something, he said, ah, Rumi with a view. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the name came from of mm -hmm. my website, Rumi with a view. And so people asked me to to translate and I was like, well, just the whole Rumi thing is so saturated. Why would I even want to do anything with that? You know, but um but but there was just it just like something kept pulling me and pulling me and pulling me and and uh, I was like, translation is not enough. It has to be, I have to put the essence, which is the, the Farsi script. Mm -hmm. And I ha people have to see this. Mm -hmm. So I started making calligrams, which is uh, calligraphy in Persian, uh, combining it with an image or making an image out of the calligraphy of the poem. Like your shirt you're like wearing. Like my shirt, we have, yeah. we have this on video. So uh, those of you that want to see, she's going to show some of her amazing paintings that are actually in the cards. So if you're listening on audio, if you want to see, go to Living 4D, uh, my YouTube channel. I think if you just search Living 4D with Paul Check on YouTube, you'll find it. So in the video, you'll get to see some of the actual paintings that are in the cards, and they're absolutely friggin' gorgeous. And uh, I love uh, many of the paintings, you know, um, in the cards. You can you can actually see the Farsi in the paintings quite easily, like uh, trying to find one like here, Freedom. Uh, for those of you guys that are looking, we'll, we'll, we'll try to, she has this painting as well here, so we'll try to make sure we get pictures of that for you. But like, it's all through her body and her hair. That one is actually at, um, not here. Oh, um, I thought I saw that. No, no, there's the, was it Freedom that I saw in there? That, oh, is, that is freedom, yeah. One of them, you have a woman in there with her hair blowing, and it's got the, the poetry in her hair, doesn't it? Yeah, wisdom. Wisdom, the, yes. Yeah, with the moon in the background. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, and so the ones that I brought are collaborations. So mm -hmm. ha about ha half of them I've painted on my own, and half of them with this brilliant artist, um, Carmen Costello. And uh, 
she painted many of them on rice paper. We we painted with, with a calligraphy painting together, and she's she just amazing. And her art, and as soon as I saw her, I was like, we have to do something. And she was moved by Rumi's poetry as well. So so um, so we did a bunch of paintings, and I was like, why didn't I put this in an oracle card? thing mm -hmm. and that's just kind of i don't know where that came from and <laughs> yeah and and uh are they selling well it, um my publisher says they're one of their best sellers so good well they they should be um you know i'm a as you can see you're in my library i collect a lot of stuff i only buy stuff that i think is really worth keeping you have a gorgeous library full of amazing books thank you yeah i shared some some of my books with ari earlier today and uh, showed her my Rumi collection, which is pretty comprehensive. There's probably, I don't know, 150, 200 Rumi books over there. But um, so you, you uh, when did you produce the cards? In 2018. Okay, so they're fairly recent. They're fairly recent. The process took 10 years as far as the, um, you know, and I didn't even know it was going to be, I just kind of, the poems would pour out. I would put them on, on, um, on canvas some of them are huge mm. some of them are this size yeah that's those are pretty good size and um and then you know when i met carmen we started doing this and somehow it it uh, occurred that yeah we should turn it into oracle cards so and you do some journalism what what are the kinds of things you've been doing um for a living while you've been in the united states living here so um i was i um studied molecular biology and oh, I was how interesting yeah at cancer research in grad school and I became a um a rep for Nikon microscopes and um biotech so I for imaging equipments mm -hmm. and and things like that but um I was really um successful in my field but I was also very uh depressed that wasn't really what I what what my heart, my soul wanted. And I then kind of just when the kind of poetry started pouring out, um, I started doing so many different things, like mm. became a carpenter's apprentice at the same time that I was teaching self-defense workshops to, to women and uh, running meditation retreats and things like that. Um, so, so I've just had a, this, this journey of, of uh, um, various ways to um to um make a living and then um recently became um journalist because of the the border crisis mostly was was the the i was running um a uh, um drum and dance circle as a musical ambassador of peace for syrian and iraqi and afghan iranian refugees in san diego and when the uh, when migrants started coming in early, my heart went out to them, and I started covering them as a journalist. But I do science uh, journalism a little bit too, and um, health and uh, um, mind-body kind of uh, emotional well-being type of. Uh, so there's just whatever is my curiosity, I go and find experts and have a lot of personal essays too. That's fantastic. I'll have to keep you in mind for uh, writing projects. <laughs> I think you might find my work interesting. I, I, um, you have, has anyone written a book about you yet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I don't think anyone's written a book about me. We've had probably five people in the last two years approach us offering to do a documentary, but uh, our CEO has told them all no because we have too many projects going and to do the kind of documentary that um, they want to do and we would like to do is is probably going to be at least a year project to do it properly, but um, uh, it's it's going to happen at some point. But uh, Yeah, your life story, I mean, just a little glimpse that you gave me is so fascinating mm -hmm. and what how many lifetimes you've lived yeah. <laughs> probably a few yes and i think you know as you know from our discussions we both have uh we both walked through hell to get to where we're sitting right now but it does give you a choice to either um become a victim or become a lover doesn't it mm. Yeah, right underneath that hell, there is clear, beautiful waters. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Angie has a shaman song for healing, and it, it's, uh, I don't know the whole song, but it starts off, Cool waters down below, down below, down below, take my pain down below, take my pain down below. Cool waters down below. So it, you, you just reminded me of that song. She she could sing the whole song for you. She has a whole bunch of them from her training as a shaman. But um, what an interesting life. So you have a child now and you're married and um, you're here in San Diego, which is just amazing. Mm, it is. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Yeah. What I what I would love to do, and I asked, uh, I connected to Rumi in my meditation this morning, and I said to Master Rumi, um, if Ari was to share some poems so we can hear you say them in Farsi and then give us the meaning of them, and then let's talk about them, because, um, you know, one of the things I love about your book um, the guidebook that comes with the poems is for each of the cards, there's lessons. So it gives you the art, and then it gives you the poem, and then it gives you an overview uh, about some of the kind of biographical and, and historical information. But then she has a section, Poem in Action, and she gives you beautiful exercises. Um, so for example, just as an example on page 20, the poem is silence, and, and it's a beautiful picture of lips with a finger up to the lips, like we're telling someone to please be quiet. And then in the, the poem in action, it says, sit in a comfortable spot and close your eyes. Relax your breathing. Take long, luxurious breaths. Now notice sounds. If you're in a noisy place, focus on the silence between the sounds. If you're in a silent place, try to listen to the sound of your breathing and your heartbeat. Continue for 10 minutes or longer. And then it's got a, a section question. How many hours a day can you go without speaking? <laughs> for most people, that's about <laughs> how many milliseconds can you go? Many people tell me they don't have time to eat well or can't afford organic foods. And I ask them how much time and money they've spent seeing doctors, sitting in waiting rooms, and standing in lines at drugstores. I also ask them if they realize that research shows that the average person or animal eating organic 
foods tends to reach satiation about 30% sooner than those consuming commercial foods, which means you don't need to consume as much food on an organic diet, not to mention the increased toxicity gained from consuming commercial foods. One of my first suggestions is to try Organifi's juice mixes. Organifi green juice nourishes, energizes, and detoxifies the body. Organifi red juice helps increase energy naturally, enhances fat metabolism, and slows the aging process as part of a holistic lifestyle. Organifi gold induces calmness, relaxation, and aids recovery from stress and exercise. But Organifi offers you many more amazing certified organic products as well, ranging from excellent protein powders to skin support to liver detoxification to inflammation control and joint support to critical immune, which is designed specifically to enhance immune function. Why wait to be healthy when you can start now and create your own vitality account within your own body? After all, your body is your temple and the health of your body has a direct impact on your mood and mental performance day in and day out. My family, clients, and I love Organifi, and I know you will too. To get your Living 4D with Paul Check 20% discount on any of the amazing Organifi products, go to organifi.com and on checkout use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20, that's CHECK20 in caps, and you and your family will be happier and healthier than ever. Enjoy. You know, I've been through the whole book uh, now probably multiple times, and as you can see, I've highlighted and left notes all through it because I study these things. I don't just read them. I ingest them and, and practice them, and and because there's so much authenticity in these poems, I just felt like I was listening to Rumi talking to me. And I love Rumi so deeply. So I asked Rumi to guide me, uh, and he chose four poems for us. Um, the first one is Trust, which is on page 23. So if you'd like, I'll give you your own book so you're hip to where I'm at here. And I love that painting. It's a beautiful painting of like a circle of fire with a woman dancing naked with her arms in the air. So if you'd like, feel free. And uh, I'd love to hear it in your native language and mm. then English. So I have to warn you, I, don't, I, am, I haven't um, don't know all of these by memory, but mm -hmm. trust I do. Yeah, well, you know, so. you can just ad lib. <laughs> you, just do what you did with me all day. It'll be great. <laughs> Because I, the Farsi speakers are like, what? <laughs> or you can do it backwards. You can read it in English first and then give us the Farsi. Um, so, trust. Mujtabede, mujtabede, yar pasandid mara, yar pasandid mara. Sayye u gashtam u, bord bakhorshid mara, bord bakhorshid mara. جان دلو دیده منم جان دلو دیده منم گریه خندیده منم یار پسندیده منم یار پسندید مرا Beautiful So um, so the the uh, for for this painting I chose a couple of verses and that's kind of what happens a couple of verses just keep going and going and I just in this circle with uh, is the same thing going and Going, oh, lovers, be 
rejoice. My beloved has seen me. I don't know how the alchemy of love made me into this, but my tears have turned to laughter, and a mirror is looking upon another mirror. The idol facing the qabla has bent down and kissed me. I am now qabla. Bring your prayers to me. My secret? I followed my beloved's shadow, and I'm taken to the sun. That's beautiful. Can you read the uh, exercise you suggested for us? So the poem in action for this one says, sit in a comfortable spot and close your eyes. Think of a person or being you trust. Imagine them protecting you like a cocoon. Inhaling, feel the trust. Exhaling, become relaxed. Notice sensations such as pressure, heat, or tingling in your body. Continue for 10 minutes or longer. And it has a bonus section too, which if you're comfortable with that and you want a little Ooh. more poem in action. This is Living says, 4D with Paul Check. You can dance naked on the table. You can paint You can paint my face if you want. <laughs> it says, uh, when you have a few moments in the middle of your workday, conjure the same feeling of trust in, medita- in the meditation. Notice the change in sensations as the feeling washes over you. Resume work. Does this feeling change your relationship with the task at hand? Yeah. So, you know, that brings me, uh, you know, what I want to do is, 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 is chat a little bit about trust with you. Trust can be very hard for us, especially if we've been wounded by the people that we love. And, um, you know, as we discussed earlier, I, I got very wounded by my stepfather and the pain of my birth father leaving my mother and then dying when I was eight years old and not understanding what happened to him and nobody explained it to us and I had quite a profound thing happen to me. Um, My grandma and grandpa, who I will talk about in a second, were coming to see us and my mom, I think you know, was probably trying to protect us from the pain of it all. So it was kind of swept under the rug and wasn't talked about. And my mother had a lot of pain with my father, my birth father, because he was very violent with her and abusive. But my little boy's soul only knew his love for his daddy. None of that uh, stuck to me like it did to her. And um, I, I, I had a, a very profound dream, probably my first memorable lucid dream, and I found myself floating above his funeral, um, and my grandma and grandpa were there, and a few of my father's friends, and I saw the gravestone, and I saw the people there. And a few days later, my grandparents showed up. We lived at the time, we had a pig farm in Idaho, and my grandma and grandpa showed up from California. And my grandfather started talking to me about my father's funeral. 
And uh, I said to him, I was there. And he looked at me and he, he said, Paul, what do you mean? Because he knew I was in Idaho. I said, I had a dream and I was floating above the funeral. I saw you there. I saw grandma there and I saw a bunch of other people there. And I said, I saw his gravestone and I described it to him and my grandma and grandpa were just shocked because I described exactly what the gravestone was. And so that was probably my first um, sort of profound mystical experience, if you want to call it that. And and unfortunately, my stepfather was a very violent, very violent man um, and created so much pain that ultimately led to my brother committing suicide when he was 34 and left all of us scared all the time. Um, you know, the stories are too too painful and probably even too shocking to share on a podcast unless it was just a bunch of people in a, a healing group that wanted to really, that had the strength to go through it. But um, the poem really brings me to the deepest memory of my grandma and grandpa, uh, who were my, actually my father's grandma and grandpa. So they were my great-grandparents. But I just, when I hear that poem, I remember being a little boy laying on my grandmother in bed on her chest and feeling she had big boobs and, um, and I could hold her and hug her. And my mother worked so much. My mom worked two eight-hour-a-day waitressing jobs back-to-back and we were raised by a babysitter until my, my mother had met my stepfather. So... I pretty much lived my whole life with babysitters and rarely ever saw my mom. When I did, she was just completely exhausted. But when my grandmother would take us, uh, and I developed asthma as well as a side effect, I think, of a lot of this trauma, my grandmother would hold me and talk to me and she just had so much love and my grandfather was so loving. And so as you're reading the poem, actually when I first read it, my grandmother just appeared inside of me. And I saw, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, right now it's making me want to cry. Mm -hmm. But my grandmother was the first person I really had deep trust for. And uh, when she died, it was quite hard on me um, because I didn't know who in the world I could trust. I could trust my mother, but my mother was in so much pain and working so hard all the time. There was no way I could really um, trust that she would be there. And so, um, I'm just curious, who is it in your life that gives you that sense of trust? Oh my God, so many. Yeah. Um, some of them are alive, some of them are not even. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're, they're just kind of uh, shapes, I don't mm. even. Um, my father was definitely someone I, I trusted. He was a really beautiful man. Um, the Ramana Maharshi, which I didn't know anything about before. Um, one night he came to me and, and he was just like, all I could feel was love. He's a Hindu saint. I know. Yeah. Completely out of the blue. I've and, read one of his books. It's in my life. It's beautiful. Yeah. So... He really connected me to silence. He was a really beautiful guide in my 
life. He is, he still is. Uh, I summon his presence. He I feel him in inside me so much. Um, I had one uncle I had um, who died when I was six. Also, um, someone I really trust. Um, my husband is definitely someone I trust. My kid, my son, I trust the earth more than anything. The yeah. earth, I trust the universe, um, and uh, all so many of the creatures. In fact, they're very like trust is my regular state. So, so yeah, mm -hmm. I'm like I go from like the fool that you were talking mm -hmm. that you so resonate with. Um, I know that there is no difference between um, pleasure and pain, no yeah. difference between suffering and uh, enlightenment. Mm. So anything um, in life always brings me to that. I'm just trusting life with whatever flows. Well, you began your life with bombs flying, so I'm sure you uh, something inside of you obviously stabilized you. You know, you talked about how you were reciting poems off the rooftop. So, and as you said, you came into it with Rumi in your blood. So it's, you know, maybe you've been through so much in past lives that you've come equipped for deep trust. I do know when the bombs were falling, when, you know, there was any moments that we could um, live or die, those were really beautiful, peaceful moments. So there was no fear of death. Mm. And it, I would, you know, the the war spanned like eight years. So um, this happened a few times in Shiraz where the, the but the ripples of, of the terror is, is uh, go. so people are constantly afraid. Like a mm -hmm. door slams and teenagers are having a heart attack, mm. you know, and they're getting gray hair wow. because the stress of, of that survival stress is so intense. But yeah, there, there would be times where I would just, feel so much of that stillness and, and peacefulness you know I think <clears throat> for me um, I had to grow into that and I used to have a beautiful relationship with our pigs and um, when we moved to Vancouver Island we had a 140 acre sheep farm and loads of sheep and pigs and horses and cows and chickens and uh, goats and I remember being a, a little boy uh, with a lot of emotional stress, and I, I had to take care of the pigs all the time. And we had, you know, big 450, 500-pound pigs that we would take to slaughter, but it used to always be hard for me because I became their best friend. You know, I fed them, I cleaned their cages, and, and I used to ride them, you know, and I used to love riding pigs because I always spin in circles and try to throw you off, you know. A little rodeo. <laughs> yeah, and I actually rode in a rodeo when I was young too. Oh my god! So the is there anything you haven't done? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably. Um, but uh, the 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 pigs were such beautiful animals and so gentle and so loving. And you know, when they throw me off, they'd come sniff me, and you know, you can feel their wet breath coming in. They'd be almost like they were mothering, like, "Are you okay?" Mm. And so. I developed a lot of trust with the pigs and um, 
through my life, uh, as I deepened my connection to the earth, I got the trust of the earth. But through all the pain, I really came to the realization that I couldn't trust anything more than I could trust God. And I had to mm-hmm. penetrate. I had to penetrate. Um, I had to penetrate the veil of the illusion. And uh, as I shared with you, I began having out-of-body experiences at 12 years old, and I realized that I wasn't stuck, and I could go anywhere. And as I practiced, I found that I could go to the sun, to the moon, to any of the planets, anywhere I could put my mind to, I could go to. So I started realizing that a lot of the things that they taught in Christian Sunday school about God were just terribly wrong. And then when my mother joined the Self-Realization Fellowship and I got to talk to the monks, I realized, oh my God, there is people here that have a viewpoint on God that matches the experiences that I'm having when I'm doing these out-of-body experiences. But later I began to be very curious what the soul was. And right behind you, there's probably close to 150 books on the soul back there. But I found it very frustrating because every single one of these authors would talk about the soul, but nobody would ever tell you how do you have a relationship with it, how do you connect to it. There's no agreement on what it is. Mm-hmm. And so I found this with almost everything I've looked into in my life. So I, I, I reached the point where one day I just simply, and I'd had mystical experiences where God had spoken to me um, on two specific occasions so I knew that God was listening and I could talk to God. So I, I just said to God, how do I find my soul? And, and the answer came back within myself, simply ask. And so I remember the day that this happened, it was probably 15 or 20 years ago now, probably 20. I was sitting in my sauna in meditation, maybe probably 15 years ago. And I just said, My dear soul, if you can hear me and you're really there and you're really real, show me a sign that's undeniable. And all of a sudden, my whole body filled with energy like like an artesian well. And it was as though energy shot up through my body and right out the crown of my head. And I went, oh my God. And I had this sense of, you know, like goosebumps, like, this was undeniable that I was getting a response from my soul. So my first thought was, there's no way I could fake that because I don't even know how to do that to myself. So I said to my soul, if that's really you, do it three times in a row so I'm sure it's you. So sure enough, big energy surge. And so that began my dialogue. And so every day I would go into meditation and talk to my soul and I developed a language so that I could speak in this energetic language. So my soul showed me what a no was and my soul showed me what it feels like when it wants me to go forward, to go backwards, to turn left, to turn right, to look up, to look down. It showed me how it could guide me to passages in books or choose which book. And so it began to guide all my studies and and tell me right what pages to go to to get the important parts for when I was developing lectures or new courses it would show my soul shops for me on Amazon. It guides me most of these, probably half these books were chosen by my soul. So 
then I, I began to, in my studies of Rudolf Steiner, I, I came across Steiner's model of the soul, and Steiner just says that everything, anything that has an inside and an outside, including an atom, has a soul. And so he describes the architecture of the soul, which I won't go into because it'll take a while, but I realized that that what we call soul is everywhere. It's it's in the rocks, it's in the plants, it's in the trees, it's in the birds, it's in the bees, it's in the animals, it's it's in anything. And so through that relationship I developed the deepest level of trust I've ever had because my initial experiences with God talking to me were actually so wild that I was afraid to tell anybody about them because I thought my parents would take me to the hospital and have me checked out as a psychopath or something. So I sat on that and, and really never talked about it, probably till I was 35 or so. And then I realized I needed to teach my students because so many of them had a lot of trauma in their lives too and, and, and felt very alone in the world. So I thought, well, I have to teach them how to have a relationship with their soul because only God can give us a soul and therefore it is God within you. Soul is God as you. And so I developed this language and got to the point where I was absolutely sure that I knew what I was teaching and had such amazing results and my soul paints with me and does everything with me. And, <laughs> and so I, I learned trust that way, but I think... Um, I think it was the path through pain that led me to that deep trust. And, and as paradoxical as it is, if I had to do it all over, I don't think I would choose an easier path because I may not have ever found the truth of myself mm. and the trust in myself. So thank you for that amazing poem and, and sharing where your trust comes from. I felt I should share what led to mine. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you for telling me that story. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've all heard of the benefits of bone broth, but I bet you don't know about bone broth protein powder. I found an awesome bone broth protein powder with Paleo Valley, and I asked Autumn Smith if she'd explain why hers is so good from Paleo Valley. Well, like you said, collagen is basically the fountain of youth, and most of us are not getting enough of it in our diet because maybe we don't have time to simmer bones on a regular basis. And so we created our powder to make getting the benefits of collagen for your joint health, for your gut health, for your mental health, really, really simple. And we sourced it from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished bones. So it is a beef bone broth protein powder that you can literally put in everything. It's tasteless. I add it to my son's smoothies. I put it into his desserts. You can even put it in soup and get all the benefits of collagen without all of the time and energy and investment. So all you have to do to check it out is go to our website at paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15. That's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 at checkout. And I hope your family loves it. I know you'll love it. Keep your body healthy. Keep your kids healthy. And let's make the world a better place with Paleo Valley. Enjoy. Your grandmother, I love that. That that um, how you know when when you were talking about her, and I could feel her in you. And she just is. the 
well, first of all, you have her DNA, which mm -hmm. is like very physical, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there is that. Yeah. But also we have this beautiful, for me, it's a little harder to, define where the body ends and where the mind begins where the soul you know they're all a little more mm -hmm. like this mm -hmm. and um this virtual reality kind of a machine when we think about something our physiology our biology really responds to to the as if they are here so so it, that's remarkable that your nervous system can can do that mm -hmm. can can just conjure um you know so much and we can definitely use that to our advantage as we go through life yes i believe the dna is really an antenna system it's a cosmic antenna system yeah and I, what they call junk dna is our ancestral record from mineral to plant to animal they, they only call it junk dna because they, they don't know what it is <laughs> haven't figured out <laughs> I've been telling people for years, look, I talk to plants, I talk to trees, I talk to animals, I talk to souls, I talk to God, I, I have visitations from people in the afterlife, including my grandmother. In fact, one day I was going through a challenging period in my life and business challenges and things like that, and I had just fallen asleep. I was just falling asleep, and all of a sudden, I felt somebody come sit on top of me on my bed. And it shocked me, and I could feel the weight. And so I tried to turn on my clairvoyance, but I was so tired, I was kind of half in and half out. And I said to my soul, should I be nervous? Is this a negative entity of some kind? And my soul said, no. I said, well, then who is this? And my soul said, it's your grandmother. Oh. And it just broke my heart wide open, and I just started talking to her. And mm -hmm realize my grandma's probably been following me around keeping an eye on me the whole time oh my god that is such a lovely story yeah it was very and and you know i'd gotten so wrapped up in life i had i just got you know i i kind of i kind of um just my grandmother was gone you know and but but when that happened i realized she was there and so since i've been maintaining the relationship with my grandmother and grandfather and using the same skills I use to help people who need to heal wounds with deceased ancestors because they often come to me when I'm in therapy with them. And so because I'm clairvoyant, I can see them and convey messages. So now I get to visit my grandmother and my grandfather more often just because I realized I need to stay in contact because it's such a precious relationship. But uh, yeah, trust is a... Trust is probably the, um, I think it's the most important thing. It is. It really is. Um, first of all, distrust is exhausting. It takes a lot of energy. Trust yeah. is effortless. And if you're trusting the, the, the source that you're supposed to be trusting, yeah. then, then life is kind of just flowing and it's not mm. so much um, fighting. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's too what, what Penny brought me, you know, when Penny and I got together, I felt so loved, mm -hmm. so completely loved and so completely supported and blessed that she was the first and first woman in my life that really let me be myself. I didn't have to worry about being me. And she loved me for being me. And um, I just, 
wish that uh, other men could have that experience of a woman that can love them that fully, and I wish that the women could find men that could love them that fully. It's, you know, I'd have to say that the closest human being I've ever known to my grandmother is Penny. Mm. And so it's uh, it's been a gift to be able to have um, such a deep and intimate relationship with Penny. And, and then when I met Angie, I was able to experience trust again at a deep level. Mm. And we have it together. And then my kids, and so I'm, I'm sure that you've experienced that trust and love you know i think love is really the if the love's not there the trust is hard to come by mm. yeah. yeah they're always travel in packs right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes like um the the what we call negative stuff to travel in packs so um i recall the the name of the people that put us in touch the lovely couple jamie and leslie edmund they're um Apparently, they're amazing singers. I haven't had the opportunity to, to hear that. And they sing in all these different languages. And they're just absolutely gorgeous people. So Yeah, well, I'm sure grateful for them for putting us in touch and turning me on to your work. Well, they, they uh, I think they, uh, they sent me something to Angie to forward to me. And, and it resulted in me tracking you down and looking your cards up and I think they were the ones that told me that you had cards, so I immediately went to Amazon and found them and like, cool, and got them. And I went, wow, I've got to meet this lady. So here we are. <laughs> Yay. So uh, the second poem that uh, Rumi guided us to for our, our sharing today is Silence. Do you want to take us into your beautiful silence? Man mm-hmm. غیر غمر هیچ مگو سخنی جز سخنه شمع و شکر هیچ مگو دوش دیوانه شدم عشق مرا دید و بگفت آمدم نعر مزن جام مدر هیچ مگو گفتم ای عشق من از چیز دگر می ترسم گفتم ای عشق من از چیز دگر می ترسم گفت آن چیز دگر نیست دگر هیچ مگو Beautiful. Can you share it in English? Mm. Last night I became mad Love saw me and said, I am here. Don't shout, don't wail, just be silent. I said, oh love, what I fear is something else. I said, oh love, what I fear is something else. Love said, there is nothing else. Just be silent. Mm. Takes a while to learn to be present with silence, doesn't it? Mm. And then it's hard to like um, peel yourself away from the embrace of your beloved after mm. you do get. Yes. <laughs> 
What do you think it is? I'm curious. What do you think it is that makes silence so hard for for people? I mean, I I don't know how it is in your culture, but I know in the Western culture, uh, people have a really hard time with silence. Mm-hmm. Part of it is habit. Part of it is, I believe, relationally, we are so, such social creatures. Mm-hmm that we have to be showing our hands and we have to be getting cues from the other person constantly. Mm. Our subconscious is always, um, is, is just churning all these, this, this uh, information. And uh, words have become so dominant ever yes. since they were developed mm-hmm. as, as a means of, of exchange and relating to one another so i would say that it's just it becomes this kind of a compulsion to just keep talking and listening to another person talk you know one of the things as a therapist i've found and also doing my own healing work i found that and jung uh, talks a fair bit about what he calls complexes which are um emotionally charged networks of neurons that share common associations. Mm. So what Jung says is, for example, if you have a traumatic event, say you're, um, like when I was a kid, I got ran over on my bicycle. Uh, The ice cream truck had just pulled up and I was riding my bicycle across our yard to cross the street to get to the ice cream truck. And some guy that was really in a hurry to get to work came flying around the corner in his car and he was going so fast that just the timing was such that he clipped my back wheel and just knocked me, I don't know how far, but it it beat me up pretty good and ruined the bicycle. And so the way a complex works is it will link the bicycle with the sounds, the colors, all the sensory information even beyond what you're, you're conscious of, all creates associational links. Mm. So anytime there's any of those factors in the environment, an ice cream truck, the color white, the candy cane sign on the ice cream truck, the sound of the engine of the car, uh, the grass and the sidewalks, those are all neurologically networked together in a complex. And because anytime we're traumatized, it's a threat to our survival, the nervous system develops a very, very strong charge around any threat. And those complexes actually start acting like watchdogs to protect us. So anytime they see anything in the environment that links to the complex, the complex actually develops artificial intelligence and it really begins to have a language of its own. And if you get enough complexes, then you can get what's called multiple personality disorder. And each of those personalities is as real as real gets. And current research shows they've hooked people up to very comprehensive biofeedback devices. And they've shown this with schizophrenics, but with even with people with multiple personality disorders. And they've actually documented that when people switch personalities, their eyes will change, their tone of their voice will change, their facial expressions change. There's radical shifts that previously they didn't even know were possible. So the complex can be so strong, it actually completely uh, produces a different personality. 
And so Jung describes uh, how these complexes can really um, take over so much of our inner world because they're talking to us all the time. Mm. And so I think from my experience working with so many people that have been traumatized that one of the reasons they're afraid of silence is because they start hearing the voices of all the complexes, most of which are linked to some kind of event oriented toward fear. Mm. And so also when we look at the shadow aspects of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we have to deny or repress because they don't fit into our culture, our belief system, or our parental dictates, or our our uh, judgments of ourself based on our programming. For example, if someone's uh, highly sexual and they have an affinity for both males and females, that's quite frowned upon, especially if you're from uh, most religious families of any kind uh, of the major world religions would would not see that as healthy and so a person can um, repress that to fit in and that becomes alive in their unconscious and their shadow and so those parts of themselves um, are like children that aren't getting any attention so the more we repress ourselves and deny ourselves the more we get what the native americans call soul loss so that piece of our for example, bisexuality is very real. It's really who we authentically are behind the programming. It's who our soul nature is. So when we repress it, we actually push it into the background and it produces soul loss. So a person can be married and all things can seem beautiful on the surface, but underneath there's this deep emptiness of disconnection or a lack of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And so the silence um, brings us into a place where we're not hearing enough chatter, we're not being distracted, as you said, with the communication through language, eye, eyes, um, voice, and so all of a sudden we're in the presence of the parts of ourselves that we have repressed, and they start speaking to us because it's the first chance they've had to get our attention. So, unfortunately for a lot of people that haven't done um, much healing work, silence is actually a scary place because they come into contact with all the voices that have been um, generated through neurological associations and complexes and traumas and shadow, repressed shadow or aspects of our soul that need our attention. And um, the beautiful thing is, and this is one of the most important things I teach people, is that if you are one of those people, which I'm sure a lot of people listening are, it's very important to realize that if you allow those voices to speak, but instead of perceiving them as scary or as yourself being loopy, because a lot of people don't want to tell anybody about that stuff because they don't want people to know there's voices in their head, <clears throat> if you actually witness them, engage them, and say hello, and say, what is it that you need, or why are you scared, and and pay attention to those voices, then the subjective becomes objective, because now what was moving you inside without your conscious awareness that you could separate yourself from it, which means it's unconscious, now you say, ah, hello, there's the voice of the child that got hurt getting an ice cream. How are you? Are you okay? 
It's safe now. We've had lots of ice creams and we've healed from that bicycle accident. So what happens is you bring that unconscious part of yourself into objective awareness and you separate yourself from it and you develop a relationship and you find out what it needs and it often just needs to know that it's okay Mm -hmm. and it needs to know it's safe to go to the ice cream truck and that it won't get crushed when it rides a bicycle. And so as we do this work, we come to the realization that the best way to heal them is for us ourselves, the part of ourselves that we know we can hear and feel, to be silent, to give those voices a chance to speak. For example, I can't really have an effective relationship with you, Ari, if I'm thinking in my head while you're reading that poetry, because I can't connect to the vibration, I can't connect to the essence of it, because I've got a dialogue going on in my head. But if I really make space to hear and feel you, then I can really get an essence of who Ari is and what she's conveying to me. Even if I can't understand the Farsi, I certainly can understand the language of tone and inflection and and vibration, and I can feel what it's doing inside of me. So I need to be able to offer you silence so I can have a, a, a real relationship with you. Otherwise, it looks like I'm sitting here, but I'm really not here. I'm engaging some dialogue in my head. And so I think if we realize that going into silence, particularly when it's scary for us, but we witness and observe and engage those voices and become loving mothers and loving fathers and nurturers for them, then we actually get to practice being in silence while witnessing the parts of ourselves that are speaking for whatever reason it might be And we actually come to the realization that silence is so essential to an authentic relationship, and we can't have one with someone outside of us until we can have one with the person inside of us. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to announce an amazing offer from Bioptimizers for those of you that have never tried Masszymes, which are my favorite enzymes. I use them every day. I use them to help me digest food, and I also use them to help clean up my body to increase athletic performance and recovery. But I wanted to share Wade Lightheart with you because he's here with me today, and he can tell you some of the most important things that Masszymes can help you with. Yeah, Masszymes is great for bloating, gas, indigestion, brain fog. If you're waking up with, you know, that kind of foggy feeling, crust in your eyes, bad breath. It's oftentimes because of undigested protein. Right. Masszymes is the strongest proteolytic enzyme blend on the market today. It uses cultured enzymes, which are 10 to 100 times more potent than a regular enzyme. It also includes 14 other enzymes involved, as well as astrologous root. And what it does is it will convert, essentially take one gram of protein and create the equivalent of three grams of amino acids, which is what your body actually needs. Normally, our digestive powers wane significantly by the time that we're 30 or 40 years old. And that's why a lot of athletes have a hard time recovering. Masszymes boosts recovery, transforms your digestion, and improves your clarity and focus, as well as a little energy boost. That's amazing. So you have a, a really amazing offer for people. Can you share that offer? Because I've uh, this is a rare offer. So wait till you hear this one. Well, if you've never tried Masszymes before, we're going to make this super easy. In fact, we're going to give all of your listeners a free bottle of Masszymes 
Just go to www.masssimes.com slash Paul Free. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash Paul Free, and you will get a free bottle. And of course, if you have tried Masszymes, of course, you can go to www.bioptimizers.com slash Living4D. Paul 10 is the discount code. That's small Paul 10. And you'll get 10% off all Bioptimizers products, and it's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com. So thanks, Wade. That's an amazing offer. You guys take advantage of this offer because these are definitely the best enzymes I've ever tried in my life, and I've tried a lot of them. So once you try them and you feel how beneficial they are, I guarantee you you're going to see that mass symes are not a cost. They're an investment in your health and vitality. Wade, thanks for sharing today. Love having you here. Always best to get the wisdom right from the master himself. Thanks so much, Paul. Oh, great spirit. That inner critic that many people are tormented by, it is the voice of some... um, perhaps a, a harsh parent or teacher or um, but th- there is a way again that alchemy of of uh, of, of of dance yeah. dancing with with what is happening that that critic has a message to say they just haven't they haven't been um, they haven't learned to 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 relay the message in a in a way that you can hear and benefit from it. Yes. And it's just like having this dialogue. It's like, ah, oh, you want, don't do this. Why are you doing this? You're such a stupid. But, you know, instead of that, it's like, oh, I can't hear that. But can you say it in a way? Oh, the reason that I'm saying this is mm. because this works so much better. And then so it just keeps transforming in, in our mind too, how um, the inner critic becomes this ally and helpful kind of a, a voice instead of a tormentor. You know, I think you as a mature woman who's got a husband and probably has had relationships throughout your life of many types, as we all do, from friends to family to co-workers to lovers, I'm sure you've noticed that if you're trying to get a point across to your son or to your husband and you get a sense that you're not being heard you or I or all of us continue to repeat ourselves until we have the sense we've been heard, don't we? Maybe that's kind of an exhausting way to to go about. So yeah, that that dialogue is like, how can I say this in a different way, you know, to... Right. So like if you, for example, have something in the oven and you have to leave and you say to your husband, honey, make sure at four o'clock you take the roast out of the oven or it'll get burnt, but he's watching TV and not paying attention you're probably going to have to say, honey, are you listening? Make sure you take the roast out. And if he still doesn't respond, what are you going to do? You're going to have to go stand in front of him and get his attention. And only when you actually know you've been heard will you stop giving the message. So the point that I'm making is, often all it takes is for us to hear our own inner voices or to hear the voices of those that are communicating to us and the voice stops because we stop when we know we've been heard. But we have to be brave enough to hear ourselves or we keep the dialogue going. And if the dialogue is coming from a place of pain or fear, then we have a fear of silence because those voices haven't been heard. 
and a nonviolent communication, they teach that whenever there's pain in the dialogue, it almost always means there's a need for empathy. So mm -hmm. if we have a judgment of ourselves, like maybe we rip somebody off and we don't know why we did it or we had some excuse, but we know inside of ourselves we weren't being fair or we um, said something to somebody that hurt them, but later realized that that wasn't how we really wanted to present ourselves and we know, geez, I really wish I wouldn't have said that or we were drinking too much alcohol or something like that. <clears throat> we can have what Freud called the superego, the, the, the critic, like the judge inside of us that keeps, why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. So you have this voice in your head. But one of the things I learned from nonviolent communication is if you find that part of yourself and give yourself some empathy. So I'm guessing you're really feeling sad that you said that to your best friend and wounded them like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am feeling sad. I'm guessing you're afraid to have to go apologize and you wish you wouldn't have to do that. Yes, it is really scary because my ego doesn't want to admit that it was wrong. It's okay. I can feel that. I can feel that shame or that guilt with you and it'll be okay. We'll feel better when we do it, even though it's scary. So once we give ourselves empathy or give other people empathy, they again feel heard and then we can be comfortable with silence. And one of the amazing things that happened when I met Penny is she was the first woman I ever had a relationship with that I could sit for hours with and not say a word to and she didn't need me to talk in fact we would as we traveled around the world we would sit at dinner and she would read a book and I would read a book and people used to say wow you guys must have been married for a long time because you don't talk we've watched you for the last two hours you haven't said a word to each other and we said, we just love to be together. We don't need to talk. We love to read and we just love hanging out together. And so I think for a lot of people in relationship, um, if there's not a deep trust that the partnership is reliable and deep and love-based, then the talk is almost kind of like an attempt to keep gluing something together that feels like it's got frayed edges. Or you have the awkward silences that, yes. you know, where it's not nourishing, but right. it's more depleting. Yes, or it's a way of communicating something that is... Uh, it's wrong. Potentially, uh, if you were to say what's really on your mind, it might create more of a catastrophe than you want to deal with. Mm -hmm. So going silent is, is, you know, we call that the silent treatment. But that's not the healthy, loving silence that Rumi's speaking about, is it? <laughs> Yeah, that I mean that if that happens, it it's like um, just a very homeopathic dose of that, you know, in life. And the, but then, yeah, the beautiful, spacious silence that nourishes every part of you is is so luxurious to be in. <laughs> and you know, we all need silence. That's why we go to sleep at night. We have to get out of the show for a while. Mm -hmm. We've got to give our nervous system a chance to rest. And when our mind is at work. Our whole physiology is at work. Our thoughts trigger emotions and our emotions trigger thoughts. So if we have a lot of thoughts or a lot of emotions that are unresolved, the emotions will trigger thinking and the thinking will trigger emotions. So you've got like a Mexican finger trap. The harder you try to get out of it, the more noise it makes. So I think that um, if we uh, 
if we realize that sleep is such a deep and beautiful thing, I mean, I have never met anyone that doesn't love to sleep. They might have a hard time going to sleep, but once they are asleep, we all wake up feeling a lot better. And I think if we just realize that we have a real honest need for sleep, many metaphysicians and mystics say that we need to sleep because we have to have time with God each day. And if we don't have time with God, we have a hard time in life. And I think what I've learned as I've aged is that I don't have to go to sleep because then I'm unconscious of my visits with God. But when I go into meditation and give myself that same silence but stay awake, I can visit with the angels and I can visit with God and remember it. And that becomes a tremendous anchor that carries me through any of the challenges that impermanence is inevitably going to bring all of us to help us grow and realize there's more to life than physical things. Any more comments you'd like to share on silence? Anything your soul is saying? <laughs> I think we talked about deep listening, and that's just so beautiful. But yeah, I think it, I love the where you went from young to all these other places to share what what the besides the relational aspect of um, talking, what keeps us in the noise. I'd love to hear that next poem. Uh, it was, it's not service. Service is the last one, isn't it? Number three is courage. How great it is to have courage after that conversation. آشغم از آشغان نگریختم آشغم از آشغان نگریختم و از مساف ای پهلوان نگریختم آشغم از آشغان نگریختم و از مساف ای پهلوان نگریختم poem about courage i feel very soothed by those words <laughs> <laughs> yeah courage doesn't have to be um all rah, rah, rah. sometimes it's just like this trust yeah. right uh -huh. if you trust then you can have courage to do something if you really trust that that's the and trust is very nurturing and feminine um so uh and and I should say that these um, I've these are selected verses that that I I say in Farsi and also in English. Um, this this is the translation. Fear, hello, amazing creature, I am here to face you. Love was frightening, so I have become a lover. No longer the sly fox. I charge ahead toward the angry lion. Now I see her face clearly. I am the roaring lion and the one who embraces it. The moon whispers, don't cover your wounds. Love can only heal if you stand naked. Mm. And you know, a lot of people would really do well to just stand naked in the mirror and behold the beauty and the majesty 
and the mystery of what it took to create that. I tell my students regularly, if you have a hard time looking yourself in the eyes in the mirror and saying, I love you, that's the most important homework you can have. Because until you can do that, you're highly susceptible to codependent relationships where you need somebody else to do that for you. And so the courage to truly love yourself and accept yourself and care for yourself and realize the majesty of what it took because it takes an entire universe to make a human being. Mm. Beautiful. An entire universe. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you look at a flower, there is nothing in the flower that is flower. It is earth, it is water, it is fire, it is air, it is space, it is light. And to the sensitive, it's even sound. And I'm paraphrasing and adding my own additions to that. But he's really making the point that we see a flower, but we don't realize that what you think is a flower actually came from everywhere in the universe to be present with you. And when we realize that who we are took an entire universe to create, that's the doorway to realizing what God is. It's that which is so magical and so mysterious that it not only makes flowers, but it makes bodies with trillions and trillions of cells made of trillions and trillions of atoms that all hold hands, dance, sing in harmony, and give us this most amazing temple to live in and to breathe in and to create in and to cry in and to hurt in and to love in and to grow in. And I think that uh, having the courage to really see yourself and love yourself is is something that uh, helps us a lot in life. Mm. And it takes so much vulnerability, right? Yes, and that's hard for the ego. Because you can't really, your courage doesn't exist if you're already invulnerable. That's There's nothing courageous about um, attempting something that you're not afraid of. Invulnerability, or, though, really indicates uh, um, the manufacture of a shell. Mm-hmm. In tarot, which, which the nakedness is, is, is the a- antidote to that, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, in tarot, archetype 18, the moon, shows a lobster coming out of the water, and there's two dogs on either side that it's got to pass, and there's a trail going through the gates that represent the male and the female long off into the distance, which is the journey of self-realization. But the, the uh, lobster represents the exoskeleton, which means the first thing we've got to do is we've got to get our skeleton off our surface. We've got to heal ourselves of our hardness, of our fear, of our resistance, of our armoring, or we aren't going to make it. And uh, then the dogs represent the uh, polarities of our our inner self, the, the dog that loves and the dog that bites. You know, these are the old Native American Indian fable, the... Uh, grandfather is teaching his grandson i don't know if you're familiar with this one or not and uh grandpa says you see those two wolves fighting over there and grams the grandson says yes he says those two wolves live inside of each of us one is the wolf 
of evil, and one is the wolf of love. And the grandson says, well, Grandpa, which one wins the fight? He says, whichever one you feed the most. Mm-hmm. And so the crab first has to get rid of its shell, and then it has to decide which dog it's going to feed, the dog of love or the dog of fear. Mm-hmm. And until you do that, you won't make it through the gates to begin the long journey to true enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Hello, everybody. I'm super excited to announce Symbiotica's new Synergy B12 with B6. I love that product. I've been using it since they first came out with it, but they've upgraded it, improved it, and I've asked Sherveen to come let us know how does this product work and what does it work for? Sherveen, why should we use your Synergy B12 with B6? Well, we wanted to create something that gives you instant energy, instant detoxification to the cell, okay? And when I say instant energy, I don't mean anything like a stimulant like caffeine or any of the other stimulants that we're aware of. Something that actually boosts ATP production in the body and allows cellular detoxification right down to the center of our existence. And by adding B6 in there, This is a known destabilizer and reduction of homeocysteine levels in the brain, heart, and throughout the entire body. Along with that, we have fulvic minerals in there. We have different forms of B12, methylcobalamin, which is the methylating form. And it's in liposomal context, meaning that we've encapsulated it with a liposomal fat. So it's basically a food product. Mm -hmm. And as you know, bioavailability is more important than anything in this world. we got to be able to absorb all these things. It's probably our best seller. Everyone's loving it. Mothers are loving it. Children are loving it. It's allowing children's free mind, free thinking. They're not getting as frustrated as they are because all of a sudden now their body can detoxify. And a lot of people that have the MTHFR gene mutation that we know is becoming popular now, this is a solution for that. And along with the B12, we do have L-methylfolate in there as well. It's pretty much a one-stop shop when it comes to B vitamins. It's incredible stuff. And lowering homocysteine levels, for those of you that aren't in the lingo, it means it's going to lower inflammation in your body, which is a major component to the huge issues of metabolic syndrome going on right now. So run over to symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And on checkout, use the code all caps, check, C, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15, to get your 15% discount. And while you're there, have a look at all their amazing products and use your 15% discount across the board. Thank you, Sherving. My honor. There's another thing that I speak to my students about, and I know it very well, and that's called spiritual courage. And one of the things that happens when you actually make contact with your soul is you find out that your soul is a lot wilder and a lot braver than the ego. And so when I teach my classes on stone lifting or <clears throat> when I teach <clears throat> my students in, in, through the Institute and in Holistic Lifestyle Coach Training about being honest and truthful in relationships, not to hurt people, but to be honest or or the more you repress them, the more the relationship is built on, on, on false perceptions. And so you'll find that when you're talking to your soul, that your soul will tell you to apologize or to um, be more loving or to 
take the job that you're afraid of or to do what you love to do instead of what you think you have to do because it's what your parents or society wants you to do or to leave the job that's paying you a lot of money but eating your soul alive and go do what you really love to do and stop telling yourself you're never going to make it or you're uh, a woman that's got a couple of kids and you realize that you're not with the right man and, and that it's just getting worse and worse, not better and better. And you don't even want to be in the relationship because you've grown apart, but your soul will tell you, you can make it, you can find love, you can create beauty in your life, but the ego will keep telling it it can't. So spiritual courage is what we have to have when we start listening to the voice of God inside of us because it's fearless. And one of the reasons I do stonework so often is because my soul will guide me and I know that the worst thing that'll happen is whatever I'm building just falls over. But sometimes my soul tells me to pick up stones that are huge. And I'm like, you're telling me to pick that thing up and put it four feet up in the air? I might hurt myself. And my soul says, you might not. I said, well, I don't even know if I can lift that. My soul says, I wouldn't have suggested it if you couldn't. And so this dialogue goes on, and I listen, and if it's too heavy, I say to my soul, is there another way to get it up? And my soul says, yes. Put a rock in front of it and roll it up, and then put another rock behind it and roll it up two rocks. And if you have to stack three, roll it up on a third rock, and the next thing you know, it's four feet in the air, and here all this time you've been convincing yourself you couldn't do it because you only thought about lifting it. You didn't think about being creative. And so I found through working with my soul that my soul has really taught me what it means to have spiritual courage, and that is to do what's possible instead of limiting ourselves and to be honest with ourselves and to be honest in our relationships. Or we always live inside the shell of a lobster mm-hmm. and we always feed the dog of fear. Mm-hmm. And that's where trust is. This becomes so essential that's the cornerstone of your relationship with your soul you you know trust that that information that you're receiving is going to be perfect and exact for you at that moment you know when Rumi chose these poems I immediately saw what he was doing you have to have trust to really live and love fully but you have to be silent to listen to your soul or God. And you have to have courage because what your God or your soul is going to tell you is so radically different than what your ego will say. And when you do that, you realize you're here to be in service. Because to the degree you get to where you realize that, you're now a teacher for billions of people who are trying to figure it all out. And so immediately I saw the majesty and the mystery of Rumi just by choosing the four poems in the order that he did. Mm. Gorgeous. You want to bring us into service? Yes. Alam hame viran shavad. Jan qarghe tufan shavad. Alam hame viran shavad. Jan qarghe tufan shavad. آن گوهری کو آب شد آب برگوهر زند آب برگوهر زند
Love has set fire to my past and freed the bird of truth. I was a happy pearl, but the storm of love shattered me. Now I am the ocean water, making thousands of pearls. Now I am the ocean water, making thousands of pearls. Wow. Thousands of pearls. I'd love to hear what service means to you. There's so much letting go in this poem. Whatever we have constructed, whatever we have uh, built, and when when love is when love comes, you just stand naked yeah. and you just give it all up, right? Yes. And it's it you know love. In people thinking like when you're in love, you're happy and everything, but love is love is a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, baby. Love is a fire. Yeah, it's so scary. And yeah. and it burns and it burns. And when it really burns, mm. then then even love disappears and there's nothing but emptiness. And if you can stand naked in that emptiness then you start seeing your path you know who just sat right in your shoes right there Rabia I just saw Rabia sitting right inside of you right there that was so her that fierceness that she has I remember in her book and by the way Rabia is a, an amazing uh, Poet, is she Persian? No, I believe she is East Indian. East Indian? I believe so. I can't remember. I've got her in my library and I've read her book several times, but she tells the story of, um, you know, women were uh, not, in her uh, culture, it was very patriarchal. And um, she tells the story of her being at uh, she was an arrow maker. She made arrows that people used to hunt or to go to war or whatever, which is kind of strange for a woman that's that godly and mystical. But um, just paraphrasing, uh, some famous warrior type, king type came up and started, you know, acting chauvinistic or, you know, pushy with her and. I don't remember what she said to him, but she uh, spun his mind very quickly and made him realize he was with a force that he would not be able to handle. And I just remember reading and just cracking up. I'm like, oh my God, meeting a woman like that could just tear a man's ego to pieces. <laughs> it was so great. She just had, she wasn't taking any of it. And, uh, you know, that's what I love about both of my girls. They're powerful. Yes, they are. Yeah. And you are too. It's amazing. Yeah, so so the I spent a lot of time in um Austin and Boulder and Southern California where there are a lot of spiritual folks. And um what I 
noticed is I have this metaphor of us. We're a little bit like vacuum cleaners. We're here to kind of suck up the muck and mm. um, maybe um, have an alchemy with it and see what, what comes out of that. And, uh, and we have to constantly clean ourselves yes, too we do. because of all the muck. Yeah, it's a great analogy. And what and most of people are so overwhelmed. It's kind of like one time I was um vacuuming and and uh it wasn't sucking, you know. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, this sucks." <laughs> and and it was like something was stuck there. So that's most of us, right? Where we're just so overwhelmed and there's something stuck there. We can't do what we as humans are here on this earth, right, mm -hmm. to do. And and so we have to, to take the thing apart, we have to do cleansing so we can do mm -hmm. what we... So sometimes what would happen with, with people who, who learn this really well is that they don't want to suck up any more muck. Yeah. They're just like... I'm a pearl here, right? Mm. I'm 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 this museum uh, worthy um, vacuum cleaner. I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know. And there are some that should be put in museums, right? But, and and never be used. But for the for the rest of us, that's that's our that's our work. That's why we're here. This is what gives us life and joy. And mm. so um, so it's to to create the balance between, you know cleaning and also being right there with the suffering there's so much suffering in yes. the world and this poem is just so gorgeous for for this pearl mm -hmm. to say hey i'm not the most precious thing here mm -hmm. i'll let the water the ocean of love just come and shatter me come and shatter mm -hmm. me come come mm -hmm. and then you become part of the ocean making thousands of pearls and that's just such a beautiful um image to me yeah that that, that it's not really important where you are but it's mm -hmm. like how are we interacting with this magnificent and very heartbreaking world mm -hmm. yeah you know i i think in my life experience i've learned through my own experience and through working with so many countless thousands of people in my career that one of the things that we each have to do is figure out what we're not to figure out who and what we really are and that you know cleaning the vacuum as you say is getting through and sifting through and getting rid of the stuff that we're really not and what's left is is what we are and usually um, almost everything the vacuum's sucking up is some kind of a perception of not being loved or not loving others. And the side effect or the fodder or the fallout of all that or being caught in a prostitute archetype where you're just working for money because you've convinced yourself you have to or acting the victim or sabotaging yourself or acting out the eternal child and expecting people to rescue you all the time or having... Uh, God models that really don't nourish you because they're just other people's ideas that are designed to enslave you. And the more you worship that God, the worse your sex life gets, or the more in denial you have to get about your own beauty and your own intimacy and all these other things. So I think that, uh, um, 
you know, the beauty of Rumi is is that he cuts through all of that. You know, he 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 just as in one of my Rumi poems, poems he repeats, "I want burning, I want burning." Uh, he says to God, "I would be, I would be happy to even have a criticism from you. I just want mm-hmm. to be with you. Mm-hmm. You know, burn all of this away. I just want to be with you." And I I think part of the the courage aspect and the service aspect is to have the courage to look deeply enough inside of ourselves to be in service to ourselves to clean out what we're not so we can get clear on what we are. And I know in my life, the more I have done that for myself, the more I have harmonized with people that are also doing that for themselves. So the quality of the friendships and the quality of the relationships begins to mirror my own service to self and my own healing of self back to me. And it allows us to have empathy for people that are at different stages of their own alchemical transformation from the blackness or the blackening to the, um, to the stone or to the... Uh, union of the male and the female and the the realization of oneself as all that is and so i think that um there's a lot of uh real deep truth in what you're saying about the vacuum and and i think what the vacuum sucks up is everything we need to take stock of and recognize that's not who and what we really are it's the illusions that we've put energy into Um, in, in his Universal Principles, Arnold Patent makes the point that the universe is harmony itself and it will not support anything that is not congruent with the truth of the universe. So anytime we create illusions that are not in harmony with the truth of the universe, we must provide the energy to maintain them ourselves. And having worked with so many sick people and so many exhausted people, um, I saw over and over again, I've even been through it with myself many times, we create these illusions like nobody loves me or I'll never have enough money or I'll never be successful or you know the list goes on, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not sexy enough, whatever it is. Um, those are all illusions that the universe won't provide the energy to maintain. So oftentimes what's making people tired is that they're having to invest the energy into maintaining these illusions. <laughs> and when we realize that as we clean the vacuum, as you were saying, we become more present with silence. And when you're present with silence, there's nothing you've got to uphold. There's no show you have to put on. There's no clothes you have to wear. There's no rules you have to meet. So therefore, there's no energetic demand on you. In fact, silence, as I was sharing with you earlier, is explosive. So when you're there and you're authentically there, you are filled up and you can't help but get out of bed and go add something to the world. You know, I tell people to to prove this point, I say to my students, how many times have you convinced yourself that you were so tired that tonight when you go to bed, a Friday night or whatever, you're going to sleep till noon tomorrow? And you were sure you were going to stay in and be lazy, but by about nine o'clock in the morning, you were just bursting with energy and you had to go ride your bike or paint your garage or clean your house because you have so much energy from being in silence that you can't contain yourself anymore. And 
as I was saying, if you only do that when you're asleep, you're unconscious of the beauty and the majesty of the silence. But when you learn to create that space inside of yourself, and paradoxically, courage is necessary because usually when we're the most afraid or the most challenged is when we have the hardest time being in silence, but paradoxically, it's when we need to go into silence the most. Mm -hmm. And this is where Jung teaches a concept called holding the tension of the opposites. Mm -hmm. He says, don't run and make snap decisions. Don't get divorced. Don't sell your business. Don't reject your friend that just criticized you. Just sit with it Mm -hmm. and look at both sides of it. And don't feel like you have to do anything but observe it and be with it. And usually after a while of holding the tension of the opposites, it resolves itself. And hasn't there been times in your own life where you didn't ready, fire, aim, react, and sat with something, and then all of a sudden what you thought was a big issue turned out to be not so big of an issue or a non-issue? Yeah, all the time. That's yeah. the that's the beauty of that. And one time fear came and visited me which you know i fear is a hard uh guest for mm-hmm. to 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 host but it's such a um rare ho- guest that that um that when it does come it's it's like oh thank you for being here but there was one time where i felt like i held the fear like a bubble in the palm of my hand and not wanting to burst it and that kind of feeling the fear and you know and and then the 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 physiological kind of um response to the fear is like Mm -hmm. i gotta run you know both Mm -hmm. at the same time the tension between the two and it was such a remarkable kind of a moment to just be in that intense fear mm. and and just being right there and mm. yeah. so definitely the i love the the, the sitting and not running part mm-hmm. i've i've been in that state of fear many times in my life uh, you know when i was a motocross racer i used to push myself to the very edge of myself and one wrong move and I would be plastered to a tree or flying through the air going 80 miles an hour like a missile, like a Mm. rock shot out of a slingshot at high speed. And, you know, one time I was, when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division and we were doing a mass attack. What year is this? See, 80, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division in 84. 84 and 85 and 86, so uh, late 84. And where were you? Fort Bragg, North Carolina. You know what the 82nd Airborne Division is? It's, it's an elite group of soldiers that jumps into enemy territory from in the air. And you were actually going into enemy territory? No, not in that situation. Okay. I was in I was in training. Training, they got it. put us in these very intense situations. So we were doing what was called a mass attack. Mm. And almost all of our jumps are done at night because you don't jump into enemy territory and during the day they can see you. So you fly in at night and uh, oftentimes they'll set up um, 
battle scenarios on the ground. So you're jumping and you can hear a machine. They're not shooting at you, but they make it feel very real. Um, and a mass attack is when you have as many as seven, 800 paratroopers jumping at one time. And it's very, very dangerous because the runways are only so long. So you have at that particular jump, I think there was 800 of us jumping at once and we're jumping from about uh, 800 feet, which is very low. Uh, you have one second if you have a malfunction to figure it out or your legs are going to go right through your head when you hit the ground because the velocity you're moving at, if your chute doesn't have enough time to open, you, it's like you have no chute. And so what happened was, is uh, as I was going out the door, um, I was with a bunch of um, um, recon rangers, which is the elite Marine soldiers. And they, they the Marines trained with us in the Army. And these guys are just wild nutcases, you know. They're, they're like lunatics with weapons in their hands, a lot of them. And this guy pushed me out the door. So as we were shuffling out the door, jumping out of a C-141 aircraft, which is a huge jet. It has a stall speed of 228 miles an hour, so you can't go any slower than that. So when your chute opens, it's really hard. If your balls are not in the right place, you'll get a testicular injury because of the shock of the chute opening. And so this guy, for some reason, just pushed me out the door, but I hadn't been able to hand the jump master my static line. So when he pushed me out, I had to quickly grab my chute, and I didn't realize the static line went out of the parachute and under my armpit up into the airplane. Wow. So when my chute opened, it almost ripped my left arm right off my body. Mm. I literally felt like mm. the devil had just grabbed me by the arm and just jerked it right off. My whole arm went numb. I felt like I had a severe neurological problem, but I'm in the air now the because it went under my left arm, as the chute opened, it spun me. So I'm spinning through the air like a top. So when my parachute opened, it wrapped the cords up, which is called a cigarette malfunction, which is a very deadly malfunction mm -hmm. to have, especially at 800 feet. So what you've got to do is you've got to do, it's called the bicycle. You've got to start kicking your legs like a bicycle, which unwinds the chute. But if you don't get it unwound quick enough, you're going to hit the ground like a rock. And... Um, so I hit, uh, I did I did as best I could, but I hit the ground super, super hard. And I just remember the experience. And the way you know you have a malfunction, typically, is you're falling a lot faster than everybody else. But it's pitch black out there, and it's hard to see, but the shoots have a little bit of color. But I noticed, man, I am passing people like crazy. And I was in so much pain, I didn't realize I was focusing on what happened to my arm because it happened so quick. It was like someone just hit you with a sword or something. You know you're injured, but you don't know what happened. And so I'm falling super fast and I feel myself spinning around in the air and I'm like, oh my God, what the hell's going on? But I just had this wave of fear go through me like, today's the day. I'm gone. I'm going to die right now. And I'm kicking and I'm <laughs> like, the ground's going to be underneath me any second. And you can't see the ground until you get quite close because it's so dark out. And man, I hit the ground so freaking hard. It just knocked the piss out of me. And I remember I had a wallet in my left pocket. And it was a California surf wallet, like a beach wallet. And it, had, uh, it was made of like a tent material and it had a logo on it. 
and it was turned so the logo was facing my butt. Well, when I took my uniform off, there was blood all over me, but there was no physical wound. The pressure of the chute opening pushed the blood right through my skin, and I was covered in blood, but there was no wound. But when I took my pants off, the wallet, I hit the ground so hard, the wallet imprinted that I could see the stitching in my butt and I could read the logo printed in my ass from the logo that was on the wallet. And I had a bruise the size of a softball on my butt and I could barely walk and move. And it took me about six years to rehabilitate myself from that. It created what's called a multi-directional instability in my shoulder. So I could barely lift weights or do anything because my shoulder kept falling out of the socket. Mm. But the point is, I've had experiences like that or when I'm flying through the air and realize I'm about to land where I'm not supposed to be on a motorcycle or racing a car and all of a sudden someone hits me and I'm flying at a wall going over 100 miles an hour and going to meet God in a second. And did you get to talk to that man who pushed you out? No, uh, I didn't even know who it was. You you know, you're often with soldiers you've never met. You you go into these staging areas. It's like you're just a bunch of cattle with 110 pounds of weapons and machine equipment on you. And you're, you're just moving in because they were, um, we were doing um, training exercises with other branches of the military and other uh, companies. So you, you may not be with people that you know, and it was wow. just, I wonder if he had an inkling what, what he did. I don't know, but uh, I was in charge of, of uh, 15 recon rangers in jump school, and they were constantly purposely getting in trouble just to show how tough they were so they would punish them. And they would just take the beatings and take the beatings and take the beatings. And there's a famous Marine named Chesty, Chesty, Chesty Puller. So that I'll yell, one for Chesty Puller, one for Chesty Puller. So you, they just wanted to get beat up. And just to show you how crazy these guys were, one time we were doing a jump, in training, we got the one-minute warning, which means you're one minute from the drop zone, so you start checking all your equipment, and then, then you get a 30-second warning, and then you get ready to start shuffling toward the door. And as soon as they opened the door, these rangers jumped up and jumped out of the aircraft, and we hadn't even got to the damn drop zone yet, which is super dangerous because you can jump into power lines, you can jump into <laughs> highways, houses, and all sorts of stuff, but the point being is some of these guys are loopy. <laughs> <laughs> like mm. there's not a lot of marbles up the stairs but uh the point being is is that when we're talking about fear there's been times in my life where i've had to look the dragon of fear in the eyes and, and it's just a uh, uh it's a miracle that i'm here i must have had an important date with you today <laughs> well i'm glad you made it <laughs> yeah i'm glad you did too i mean uh you know i'm talking about my fear but you know i don't know uh standing on top of the roof of my home and watching bombs go off uh, all around me would have been, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could have been there with you in that state that you were in of bliss. Well, the, um, the bombs were, or the war was not as, at least we knew this was an external thing. The, the joy that was being suffocated and the not being able to express ourselves and, you know, our neighbor's daughter got executed when she was 16. Huh. And we don't even know if she had a trial. They just called her parents and told her to come get her body. And I was doing stuff like she was doing. So it 
you know, at the age of 13, I was just completely had no fear of death or I was so depressed because of what was going around that I just was taking more and more risks. So I can, um, I can see the, the, uh, yeah, the, the, when, when there is violence, it kind of just shakes up your world in a, in, in a, in a completely different way. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> another time where I had a lot of fear when Angie and Penny and I decided to become a family together and we did a three-way ceremony or we created our own marriage ceremony. Penny made, had always made it clear to me she didn't want children and, and uh, she took measures when we got together to make sure she didn't have children. And uh, she could sense the energy between me and Angie and one day she said, make sure she doesn't get pregnant because if she does, I'm probably going to have to leave because I really don't want children. Mm. And so I said, you know, and I was, so as Angie and I were being careful monitoring her cycle, well, Angie got pregnant, had a miscarriage, scared the hell out of me. I'm like, oh my God, I might lose Penny. And then Angie got pregnant again. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I'm trying my best not to get pregnant here. And we're monitoring her cycle. And I'm like, there is a soul out there that is adamant to become our child. Well, sure enough, she got pregnant the third time and it took. That's when I went and did a ceremony to go meet the soul and say, what in the world is making you want to be my child when I don't want to be a daddy again? But anyhow, I remember the day Angie came to me with that look on her face and I said, what is going on? And she showed me the pregnancy test and I thought, oh my God, I've got to tell Penny that this one's a keeper. And I was so afraid she was going to leave. Mm. And I had to sit down with her and say, honey, I'm so sorry. I've really tried not to have this happen. This soul is just adamant. And I was, you know, Mona came when I was 54, but I was just so tired of parenting thousands of students. And I just I didn't have it in me to be a daddy. And the long and the short of it, I was just really afraid of what Penny's reaction might be. And she said, well, let me think about it for a while. And I had to sit there and, fear waiting for her to conclude whether or not she was going to stay around or not but she came back and she said well i'll make you a deal she says i'll i'll try it and if i can hang in there i will if i can't i'll let you know and then i had you know a lot of my own programming about being a daddy again but then god when angie got pregnant and as her belly began to grow it was as though Mana was working on me from the inside and I'd be all of a sudden my heart shock would open up and I would just feel so much love moving through me and tears would start pouring out of my eyes and I'm like what in the world is going on I used to tell the girls I'd, I'd be watching movies and there'd be a gooey section or something all of a sudden I'd be crying and acting like a woman and I'm like oh my god and the girls would crack up laughing at me and I would say, shit, if any of my friends saw what's going on right now, they'd think I'd completely lost it or that I, you know, that I'd turned into a, a, a gay man or something, you know. But the presence of Mana in the womb was just 
splitting my heart chakra wide open. And when he came, it just continued. And uh, I was worried. I'm like, you know, children, as you know, can make a lot of noise. They, there can be a lot of work. They throw stuff all over the house. Penny likes things real neat and tidy. But he got her. He got her just like he got me. She fell in love with that little guy, and he fell in love with her too. And then when Zoe came, I was afraid again, but Penny is the most amazing mother. So she managed to not have her own children, but become a mother. And it has been such an amazing journey together because her fear is that she would not enjoy mothering at all. And my fear was that I, would, I didn't want to face that much work again because I know what it takes. But in the end of it all, my fear turned out to be an illusion. Mm. And behind the illusion was two of the most beautiful little beings I could ever imagine as my children. And seeing these women nurture and love these children and working in such harmony and how beautiful their lives are having two mommies and how much love they get and how much more wisdom they have access to. And I just learned that we all have a tendency to create a lot more fear in us with our own fear than is actually reality. And that if we trust great spirit and work our way through it, some of the things that scare us the most turn out to be the greatest blessings ever. And you've met my little babies, you know. They're so adorable. I mean, I imagine so, so if, sweet. if those kids would have got aborted out of my fear or Penny's fear or Angie's fear. Mm. It's just like, two sparks of the divine right there. Mm. So I've learned whenever you're afraid, that's a great time to get still and talk to your soul and speak to the part of yourself that has no fear and find out what's really going on or you'll never ever know the beauty of love. You'll ever never have the strength to make it through the fires of life. And you're likely to drug yourself and make yourself sick and do all sorts of things that just create more and more fear until you either die or you grow up and grow some spiritual balls. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Thank you. That was a lovely story <laughs> of your children coming into being. Well, Ari, is there anything you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Um, I think we, we covered a lot. I have a question for you. If you knew you were going to leave the world tomorrow, what would be the message you'd want to give the world right now as your parting message? <laughs> there are a thousand ways to dance at the beloved's feet. So don't worry about love, whether you, have, you love yourself or don't. Keep loving other people. It'll come back around. Or start with loving yourself. Service, mm. silence. Mm. Those are so precious. And just trust that everything will work out. Everything is perfectly calculated in the divine, in the divine book. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? Mm. Where can people find your cards and your, your website and, and uh, any of your services that you offer? Uh, my website is called roomywithaview.com. 
And um, the books are online, bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere. And also um, at local bookstores. Um, I'm affiliated with two wonderful nonprofits, Musical Ambassadors of Peace and Hente Unida, which is United People, People United. And uh, we do a lot of beautiful work with asylum seekers. Um, we do dance and uh, and drum circles with, awesome. with migrants. And so check those out too. Great. Um, is there services that you offer for consulting or anything like that? I know you're a journalist. Do you do writing work? I do... Um, individual sessions 45 minute sessions with people um just based on what kind of what we talked about just building resilience through joy and silence deep mm. listening it's very customized so i customized so i don't really have a name for it right so just again her beautiful cards which come with a lovely little guidebook is rumi's gift oracle cards and Ari's last name is Honavar, H-O-N-A-R-V-A-R. And for those of you that can't see her, she's absolutely beautiful. You're very kind. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure Thank creating you. with you, dialoguing with you. Yeah. Thanks for painting with me. It was just amazing. And I'll have uh, I'll get a nice picture to put in the show notes and share it with everybody and if you can get us some pictures maybe of your art to share too we'll share that but if you want to see lots of this beautiful art just get Rumi's gift oracle cards and these cards and the lessons in them will change your life i mean i've done this kind of work for my whole life and i found these cards and the lessons that you share just powerful they're simple too you know you're not asking a lot of people but you're asking you're not even asking you're offering and you're offering people to just take a few minutes to really get to the center of it all and, and to learn to live and love more fully, I would say, is my takeaway. Yeah, what is pleasurable and easy is sustainable. So we, we, we start with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, lots of love, many blessings. Uh, maybe next time we get together, let's do some painting and bring your kid and your husband and hike the property and jump in the swimming pool, have a sauna, paint together, something fun. Sounds amazing. Okay, Thank lots you. Lots of love. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Thank you to all of our amazing sponsors. Anytime you buy something from the sponsors, you're supporting the podcast and giving me the support I need to go out and find amazing people like Ari. And so if you love the podcast, please share it. And, uh, I hope you enjoyed Ari as much as I did. She's a very powerful and beautiful human being, and she's evidence that within all of us is the path to our service and access to silence and the wisdom to trust and the courage to be who you really are in the world. So lots of love. Aho. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Ari Honava. You can find Ari on Instagram and Facebook at Rumi with a view or on Twitter at Rumi with view or on her website at www.rumiwithaview.com. Rumi is spelled R-U-M-I. 
Paul highly recommends Ari's card setting book, which you can find on Amazon and see the show notes for a direct link to this. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at living4dpodcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Thank you.